You are listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. We are back. My name is Kieran Pedley, back by hopefully popular demand. And with good reason, there is a general election, uh, the first December election for uh, what can only be described as officially donkey's years. Uh, December the 12th, um, probably the second most famous uh, reason for having uh, paying attention to that day for me because that's my wife's birthday so happy birthday Courtney uh, let's see what type of government you get as a present um, she's very, very excited about that um, and we thought it'd be quite a good opportunity to um, leave parenting responsibilities to one side for a moment and uh, dust off the microphones and chat over the numbers and what we might be able to expect from this election and as ever you can't do that alone so I'm joined uh, by a fellow co-host Leo Barassi. Leo welcome. Hello, Kieran. Last last election, you were on holiday. This election, you've got a little baby. It seems that uh, your life is being very poorly set up to do this, but good to be back. Yes. Um, if <laughs> we're, well, I was on safari last time, it was uh, the election was called, and I thought, oh, that's it, Labour are screwed. So it shows what I know. But anyway, let's carry on. Um, I mean, your reactions, Leo, to uh, the election finally being called? Well, finally is the word, right? I mean, it's... In a way, it's kind of like a mix of surprised and not surprised. So, uh, yeah, okay, we've been saying there's definitely, definitely going to be an election. But, you know, we said that there was definitely going to be an election a few months ago. It got pushed back. We People were beginning to talk quite seriously about it being a 2020 election. So, yeah, I guess it was always going to happen. But if anything, a surprise that this parliament has actually agreed to do anything. So we're going to get a glut of polling in the next few days and I, I imagine over the weekend and things. So we have to sort of preface this a little bit with there is no post-election being called polling yet. We're recording this on Wednesday the 30th. So let's maybe go through some of the obvious questions that people will ask us um, as, as we sort of look ahead to this election. So the first is, where do we stand in terms of the parties? I mean, like, I don't want to say who's going to win, but like, yeah, who's going to win? <laughs> Look, if if you interpret this election as one where you're looking at where public opinion is at the moment, then I think it's pretty hard to see it as anything other than one where the Tories should come back with a large majority. Look, I mean, let's you know start on the fundamentals. They are massively ahead in the polls. They've got clear double-digit leads in most of the polls. I mean, to be fair, that is a slightly smaller lead than they had when the 2017 election was called, but still, they are quite far ahead in the polls. Um, Labour and the Lib Dems are between them splitting the Remainer vote, so the Tories have got a pretty strong lock on the on the Lever vote. The Brexit party is doing much worse than, UK, than uh, it has at its peaks, and this is a similar level to where UKIP was. Um, Corbyn is extremely unpopular, uh, he's more unpopular than he was uh, this time in 2017. Um, Johnson's not particularly popular either, but in terms of who people want to see as a prime minister, Johnson is far more popular. So if you were just to look at the polls at the moment, I guess you would say, yeah, the Tories will lose some seats in Scotland. They'll lose some seats in the South, some to the Lib Dems, probably some to Labour as well. But they should gain many more than that. Let's say they lose 20. They should comfortably be able to gain more than that uh, among more Levy seats from Labour in the Midlands and the North. So um, if you're interpreting this as where public opinion is now, then this is a Tories election, isn't it? I think that there is 
um, a risk of overcompensating uh, in, in the analysis for what happened in 2017 there's something that I've been mulling over and I, I've been someone that's been saying for some time don't rule Labour out because of um, lots of reasons to do with seats and to do with uh, Corbyn being able to improve his ratings in the last campaign and maybe being able to do that again but the difference what, what's changed now is there is a, there is an election there is a tangible election what is it six weeks from now roughly mm-hmm. and I mean, I won't repeat what you've just said, but I think if you look at all the indicators, they look very, very positive for the Conservatives. Um, and I think there's a risk that just because um, 2017 went a certain way, just because Brexit happened and Trump happened, and that those are all surprises, that people are kind of very guarded against seeing what's directly in front of them. The, the, the metaphor I used the other day was about a football team being 3-0 down at half-time, but I don't know if that necessarily works. Maybe a better one is thinking of like Formula One, where the Conservatives are in pole position, and pole position doesn't always win, um, but it usually does. And I think Labour are too relaxed about being like way back on the grid somewhere. And you know, maybe that metaphor doesn't work perfectly, but I think there's a sort of tendency to think, well, almost to write off the fact that Labour are in many cases, most cases I think now, double digits behind the Conservatives because, hey, they came back last time, so they will again. Well, I think there's 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 reasons to think that's difficult. You've mentioned Corbyn's ratings, not just unpopular, but like the, the least popular leader of the opposition we've ever seen, Ipsos Mori. Um, but also the Lib Dems are here now, and maybe we'll talk a bit about them in this podcast. But I think there is there is somewhere for a sort of remain-minded um, centre-left person that maybe doesn't like Jeremy Corbyn to go in a way there wasn't before. And I suppose we'll come to this in a minute, but when I look, when you look ahead to how the dynamics of this campaign will go, Joe Swinson's going to be gloves off with Corbyn. She's going to call him a Brexiter. She's going to say he's unfit to be Prime Minister. She's going to just go two-footed on him, frankly, com- to continue a sporting metaphor. And it's going to be hard. So, I mean, Labour, it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, Labour can turn things around, but they're starting way back, right? I mean, it's, really, it's a really difficult spot for them to be in. So I, I, guess, a, I guess a question is, if we both accept that, how do they turn it around? Like what, what do they need to do in the next sort of five or six weeks? So I think, I mean, there, there is, there's an argument here that there's an argument that um, people like Glenn O'Hara, um, a, uh, an academic and sort of political commentator, um, he's been putting the Tories' chances as low as 20 to 30% of, of forming a majority. Um, and, you know, there are reasons for that that I think aren't easily dismissible. So um, when it's a choice of who you want to form the government, then Labour's support should increase. Some people who left Labour in the polling for don't know, for the Greens, for the Lib Dems as well, probably will come back to Labour because they'll see this as a as a forced choice between Labour and the Tories of who you want to, to have in the election. I think the issues that the election are about will probably help Labour. Um, Obviously, politics has been hugely dominated by Brexit for at least six months. Uh, More than that is very much the most important issue in the the issues tracking polls. Um, I think political journalists are bored of that and they're going to be looking for a reason to talk about other issues. So you can bet that the health service will come up, education will come up, housing will come up, uh, climate change will come up. I think actually this will be the first election uh, that there's ever been in the UK where climate change will be uh, a major electoral issue. Um, and those are all issues that even though Labour is doing quite badly on um, it, the polling about best best party on each issue, 
its policies are more popular than the Tories' ones because they are spending lots of money to fix the problems associated with these things. Um, so I think the the terms of debate should shift onto more favourable Labour territory. Um, and then I think there's something that is quite hard to capture in polling um, and we probably won't actually know if it's right until election day, but potentially really important, which is that there's some evidence that people who in every other sephological and demographic way should be Tory voters in the, the swing constituencies, the Tories will, marginal constituencies, the Tories will be hoping to win um, in the Midlands and the North of England. They have a bias against voting Tory. So uh, even though on paper they are leavers who um, dislike Corbyn's cultural liberalism and quite like uh, authoritarian-ish Tory government that um, wants to take us out of the EU and will will sound like them on lots of cultural issues. They just won't vote Tory, and there might be enough of those people to to stop those constituencies that should, on paper, be going Tory from doing so. So, though that's that's going to be hard for us to know until it happens, mm. um, and. I guess we'll get a sense of it from from qualitative work, from focus groups, and maybe there'll be some smart polling in those constituencies that'll do it. But I do think we should avoid going too far down the argument to say this is the Tories' election because there are reasons why both the headline polling and some of the underlying stuff that might not show up could make this harder yeah, for I mean, the Tories one to One of the things I always mention is that, I mean, I think in our September political monitor, we had 80% or something like that dissatisfied with the government. And mm. if you look at Boris Johnson's um, satisfaction ratings individually, I mean, they're better than Corbyn's, um, but they're not, by historic standards, particularly good. So we shouldn't overreg the idea that, you know, Johnson's this great sort of popular person that's going to come in and do really well. I think the two things for Labour are going to be, one, Jeremy Corbyn's ratings, will they improve? I think they will. I think they will improve during the campaign, partly because... Um, part of the reason they're so bad at the moment is because Labour supporters are divided on him. And you think it's pretty low-hanging fruit for Labour supporters to to sort of get a more positive view of him during the campaign. Um, will that affect voting intention figures? Hard to say. I think the manifesto is going to be... Labour's manifesto launch is probably going to be one of the defining moments, I think, of this campaign. Because if that goes well and there are more retail sort of uh, policies that really appeal to the, the, the British left, for want of a better phrase, then you mm. do get the dynamics where you know things can turn around a bit for them. Um, if you're the Conservatives, you have to in invest basically most of your efforts, I think, in trying to discredit that manifesto as soon as possible after it's, uh, after it's launched. Um, because that, that, to me, you can't point to one thing in 2017, I don't think, but you can certainly point to the manifesto for Labour as something that was a, that one of the moments when it turned round, and obviously the Tory manifesto too but again i'll go back to the same thing i think um labor's offer on brexit is going to be a, a challenge uh, particularly when they've got they're getting barraged from both sides i mean the, the tories are going to say you're trying to stop brexit don't vote labor da 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 da, da. lib dems are going to say oh corbyn's a brexiter you, you can't trust him on it vote for us so they're going to get that from both sides and that issue is never going to be um, far away and i guess the real unknown at the moment is what the tory campaign is going to be like i mean you know, having sort of said Johnson's ratings aren't that great, he's a better, he's objectively a better campaigner than Theresa May, right? I mean, we could all agree on that, whether you like him or not. Um, you know, but are there going to be cock-ups along the way? We can't know that at this stage, can we? 
Yeah, I guess two things to say in response to that. Firstly, um, I think Labour's Brexit position probably has now ended up in a place that is about right for most people who consider voting for them. So um, a position of we will renegotiate and then put that offer to the to, to the people in a, in a people's vote. Um, I think probably most Remainers and a reasonable chunk of Leavers would see that as reasonable. I think the difficulty is persuading um, particularly Remainers that Labour is honest and trustworthy and not a bad faith actor in here will be enormously difficult because it's even if they've got to a position now that is acceptable to many people, uh, perhaps having spent so long, having been on the fence, they will just not be trusted on it. And so any conversation about Brexit will be difficult for them. I think the other unknown, um, and actually perhaps it's it's more of a known unknown because we know what direction it's likely to go in, but we just don't know how strongly it'll play, is compared to 2017, there's going to be much more scrutiny and talk about Corbyn as a potential prime minister. So 2017, arguably, his surge in popularity was on the back of him being a kind of anti-government campaigner, that he was a, uh, uh, this this force that was criticising the government and um, seeming, seeming to be different. But I think there was very little attention to him as somebody who could plausibly be prime minister. I think that is going to be different now. Um, I mean, the media certainly learned their lesson, and I think it will be much more of a question. And I think that does mean that his popularity or unpopularity could be much more important. And I guess it comes back to this question of how many cultural Labour voters, 2017 Labour voters, will come back to Labour in the knowledge that by voting Labour, there's actually quite a reasonable chance that Corbyn could be Prime Minister. I think that is going to be an enormous challenge for Labour. Um, I think that also actually plays in a lot to what's going to happen with the SNP and Lib Dems. We haven't really talked about that dynamic much. You talked about Swinson going to be going in two-footed on Corbyn. Um and that's probably right for them with the kind of um, voters that they're going for. So essentially looking for dissatisfied Labour voters and to an extent Tory voters um, who were unwilling to put Corbyn in number 10. It'd be very interesting with the SNP, whether they're prepared to do the same and how that then plays out again, whether the Tories can rerun the 2015 style, Corbyn will be in uh, the SNP's pocket uh, as someone who's going to... Uh, send the money up to Scotland and uh, allow another referendum. Um, and I mean, how... 2015 feels a long time ago in that regard. We all remember the, the, the pictures of Ed Miliband in Alex Salmon's pocket. I'm not quite sure that whole dynamic works, particularly when you've just had a Conservative government propped up by the DUP. I mean, public, mm. opinion, public opinion is fickle and doesn't always necessarily follow coherent lines on this. So it may well be that even though public opinion didn't seem that bothered about the Conservatives being propped up by the DUP, they might become bothered about Labour being propped up by the SNP. I mean, it, it sort of seems counterintuitive why one's OK and one isn't, but public opinion isn't mm. always uh, sort of neat and tidy in that regard. I, mean, I think on the SNP point, I mean, they're just going to run a Scotland ca Scottish campaign, aren't they? That we're being dragged out of the EU and not just... Brexit, but a hard Tory Brexit against our will, uh, and you need the SNP to send. You need to you need to send a message and uh, have the SNP to fight for Scotland. I think that's probably one of the easiest campaigns they can run, and I expect them to do very well. Right? I mean, we could debate. How yeah, many but they're still going to have to answer have, the question right? about whether they would prop up Corbyn. And you know, let's let's you know, sure Brexit and Scottish independence are absolutely 
crucial issues in Scotland, but so so is Corbyn and Johnson and, you know, national politics still applies. Yeah, that will be interesting. And going back to Corbyn uh, a moment, I mean, I think one of the, the, the key dynamics, there's a couple of different ones, but something that Labour have really got to try and do is to concentrate minds on it's between us and the Tories to form a government. It's the age-old thing um, that um, Labour have always had to try and do. It's to say, look, you might you might like this particular party, whether it's the Greens or the Lib Dems or whoever, but actually it's a choice between these two, um, you know, between us and the Tories to form a government, and particularly at a local level where in individual constituencies, um, where if it's a Labour conservative marginal, you have to make that argument and try and make it stick. Um, but I, I guess I just where I where I struggle a bit with how effective that's going to be. I think it will be effective to a point, but the, again, the Lib Dems having that very clear retail policy on Brexit. Um, and having you know, being somewhere for these people to go who maybe weren't happy with Labour in 2017, but now, have, you know, like, like I say, now have, have something to go is a, is a problem for them. And I don't, think we, I just don't think we can underestimate how they're polling around the mid-20s at the moment. There's no guarantee that they recover. So, um, you know, they've got it all to do. So it feels like there are a lot of different dynamics here. We're obviously talking about different groups of voters who are going to be making decisions in quite different ways. And I guess something people are beginning to to talk about is whether this can be polled nationally in a meaningful way um, or whether you have to treat polling differently from how we, we've treated it before. Um, I mean, how do, you, how do you, as someone who's actively working in the industry and doing political polling at the moment, how do you... Um, treat something like this uh, when it's coming up i mean can't do you feel like you can kind of do business as usual well you can never do business as usual with polling at the moment because obviously the last few elections have been i think fair to say hit and miss um, but i still think there is a there's a place for national polling both in terms of finding out what the overall spread is what the overall national picture is and i'll come back to that in a minute um, but also about looking at sort of what the issues are i think you can learn a lot from trying to understand even at the macro level, like what are the, the top three issues that people care about? What do they think about them? Who do they trust more on them? What do they think about the different party leaders? You, know, you can you can build a, a good macro picture just from looking at these national voting attention polls. Even if you're quite right, the actual result will be decided at a local level. Um, I mean, on the national polls, the first the first step is to get it right, uh, which obviously has its own challenges. I think one of the one of the biggest challenges at the moment is how we treat uh, past vote. Um, so. We're getting into quite a technical point about polling at the moment, but um, in theory, you want a poll to have, because um, most polls will ask who you, who you voted for last time, and in theory, you want a sample that is um, balanced as it, as the result was last time. So you have like 42% voted Tory, 40% voted Labour, and so on. But the trouble is you run into issues around false recall, like people either don't tell you the truth because they're lying or they don't remember and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so you've got to try and balance that as well. And I think one of the di- one of the differences, not the only difference, uh, between some of the pollsters is how people deal with past vote. We we don't wait to past vote at Ipsos. Uh, YouGov do, but they they do um, vote based on what people said at the time rather than what they're saying now. So um, so that they ha- they have reason to think that's more reliable. And and we're two of the pollsters that tend to have bigger Tory leads, whereas others that I think I, I understand wait more closely to past vote tend to have tend to that tends to boost Labour's support a bit and have have the race a little bit closer. Although it should be said, the most recent voting intention polls tend to be drifting conservative. I think possibly Comrades aside, in most cases. So I'm thinking of Delta poll here, Opinion, that, um, people like that as well. And the other issue that has been an issue but maybe less so now that they're less popular is the Brexit party and whether you prompt for them on the first page, if you like. So do you say, will you vote Labour, Liberal Democrat, Conservative, 
Brexit Party or other, or do you say Labour, Liberal, Democrat, Conservative or other, and then if, if other, you get the opportunity of the, saying the Brexit Party. And that tends to have a bit of a difference on whether uh, what the Brexit Party vote share has been. The reason you wouldn't prompt is that historically when you prompt, um, you often um, overstate smaller parties um, and, and people's likelihood to vote for them. So that's why you don't prompt for the Greens, for example. But it's a, it's a judgment call. And um, when the Brexit party were doing better, that was producing quite a bit of variety in the polling. But now that they're not doing as well, it's sort of less of an issue. But if they do, so the Brexit party we haven't really spoken about, if they, if they were to come back to the fore during the campaign, that creates a, di a dynamic of polling to be wary of. So that there's lots of different issues around sort of the national vote share, but I still think it's important because I mean, you, you can talk about Scotland, Southwest, whatever. But at the end of the day, if the Conservatives are 15 points ahead in the popular vote, the geography will take care of itself. Like it might be a question of do they have a majority of 100 or 50 or whatever. I get that. But you're still looking at Tory majority. It's when you start getting into sort of a contest that's a five-point spread or a 10-point spread, as in the, you know, Tory's five or 10 points ahead, that's when it gets tricky because a polling miss or uh, a sort of slightly unusual variation in the votes versus the seats will... Will, will create a sort of different impression in the result to what the polling suggests. So, yeah, it's difficult. And look, there'll be lots of models out there, um, and we just need to be careful about anyone putting specific numbers of seats uh, out there because there's lots of variation and volatility and confidence intervals around some of that. So we just need to be careful. YouGov did really well last time, so if they release their model again, that will create a lot of attention, justifiably. But we'll have to just well, wait Well, exactly. I was, so I was just going to push on exactly that, that um, last time around we saw, um, partly because the polls move pretty dramatically in the last couple of weeks, um, but it was really, it wasn't the national voting intent figures being plugged into seat calculators that gave anything like the right answer. It was the MRP model where essentially you do uh, a national uh, poll and there, and you uh, use that as a basis of calculating lots of individual constituency results. Um, that was the thing that gave the first really accurate calculation of, of what it was going to look like that was very different from the traditional national polls. So yeah, I, mean, I kind of feel like th that... Again, you know, the the temptation will be again to say you can't you can't get an accurate figure. I, so I take your point. If the Tories are fifteen points up, that's that's one thing and fair enough. But if, as seems quite plausible, it does narrow down to five to ten points uh, because it seems like it it usually does, um, then um, do we have to look at this at a at a more lo in a more local way, either with M a model like MRP or uh, with lots of constituency polls. Yeah, I mean, I think if if the if the lead gets into the single digit range, then it's quite it's quite legitimate to start saying right. We have to that's that's what the national vote share is saying in the polls. But now we have to try and look more locally. And MRP is one way, but also just looking at um, like Scottish polling, for example, at the very basic a very basic simple level before we even think about constituencies. You know, what are or, or London polling that we see? You know, what what's going on um, in in specific areas of the of the country beyond individual seats? Um, but yeah, I mean, one one thing I always say is that David Cameron. The two elections that he fought in 2010 and 2015, he got a majority in one and didn't get a majority in the other. And without seeing the figures in front of me, from memory, his, his lead over Labour was quite similar, I think, in both of them. Um, but one he got a majority and one he didn't. And then you go, back to, you go back to Tony Blair in 2005, I think he led by three points, didn't he? And he mm -hmm. got, and he got a, major, a, a chunky majority of like 50-odd, I think. I'm, 
Again, I haven't got the figure in front of me, but so you're quite right that the, the, different, the, the relationship between vote share and seats is, is, is a problematic one. I guess what I'm saying is that you know, until, until the race is single digits, then we can overblow that, can't we? Um, well, yeah, but I, but I think um, we are already starting to see people looking at constituency polls and saying this points to... Uh, a huge amount of volatility and we can't know from a national picture. And I think maybe there's an element that these are particularly unusual seats, I guess, too, that, that I've seen in the, uh, in the last few days. There's one from Cambridge where the Lib Dems jumped up um, for a quite distant second, I think, into, into a reasonably comfortable first. And there's been a few seats, a uh, few polls in the seat. Um, uh, I think, is it Finchley and Golders Green where uh, Luciana Berger is running? Uh, where again the Lib Dems are, according to constituency polls, ahead. I suspect there will be quite a bit of that constituency polling, probably mostly done by the Lib Dems in reasonably unusual seats like that. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's it's hard to know how how much stock we should put in those. Certainly, I think the experience of 2015, when there was loads of Ashcroft constituency polling, was that uh, it was actually not very useful and it. It was quite misleading. There was a lot of attention to it, and it turned out not to have done a very good job of predicting the result. But um, again, I think people will probably be drawn to it if, uh, the, if as we think we are, we're in an election where there's lots of uh, small, uh, conflicting uh, tensions going on between different parties in different places and pushing in different directions. Then I think people will tend to be drawn to constituency polls. And it's interesting to to sort of try and get a sense of how much stock we should put in them. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's we don't have loads of new polling. I'm sure there will be over the weekend. So let, let's wrap this up by thinking a bit about what we're looking out for, other than the polls, in the next sort of uh, few days or week or so. So um, yeah, let's finish that way. Okay. Um, well, do you want to go first? Yeah, go on. I mean, so I think uh, for me, one of the unknowns in this election is the Brexit party, who obviously won the European elections, got the most votes by quite a way. Uh, I think it was around five, four or five million votes they got there. So, okay, low turnout election, different context election, but still millions of people voting for them, which shows that there is an appetite in the country for very firm sort of Brexit line. And Nigel Farage, obviously, is, is, is their champion. So the question for me is going to be what impact, if any, I mean, presumably he'll have some sort of impact, he will have uh, in this contest. And there's a couple of different dynamics there. One is how much are the media going to care? They're obviously going to follow him around, but will he be a fourth or fifth order issue on the news bulletins or will he be front and centre? That's a question we don't know the answer to yet. But also, what's the, what's the relationship between him and Boris Johnson going to be like during the campaign. One of the anecdotal things that I've noticed, and I know anecdotes are not necessarily where you should always be, is that when you go on social media uh, and see Farage attack Boris Johnson, he gets a lot of pushback from leavers uh, below the line. And that's only just that's a very small anecdotal thing, but I wouldn't underestimate it that, as a sort of refle reflection that Johnson, um, Johnson does have a sort of inherent amount of credibility with leavers that maybe Theresa May going into this election would not have done. And I think this all comes down to the deal. Ultimately, the Conservatives are running, uh, they ran in 2017 as a referendum on May almost because they thought that was an asset. Now they're going to be running almost as a referendum on getting Brexit done, getting the thing sorted, you know, putting it to bed as it were. Um, 
So the question is, will Boris Johnson's deal survive this election campaign? Now, Labour obviously have a role in that, and that's going to be front and centre of what they do. But I wonder what the Brexit Party's role in that's going to be. Can they convince enough Brexit voters that this is not true Brexit and Johnson shouldn't be trusted and so on and so forth? I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's an important dynamic because if anything is going to bring Labour into power and, and help them recover, yes, they've got a role in it themselves in improving their vote share, but also the Brexit Party taking votes off the Conservatives as well is going to be an important dynamic too in dragging the, the Tories down to the sort of lower 30s range, mid, mid to lower 30s range. So for me, yeah, Brexit Party all the way. Uh, that's something I'm going to be watching very, very closely in the next week or so, and obviously during the election. Um, I don't know what you think, Leo, and what, what, you, what you're watching out for. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And I think, in fact, you could widen that out and say it's not just about what the Brexit Party do about the deal, but it's, in fact, more widely a question of how far the, the content of the deal is a question of debate in the election. So uh, I've always thought that um, leave beats remain when there's no deal on the table. And I assume that the Tories will prefer the question that the voters are thinking of to be, do you want Brexit done uh, or do you want Brexit to carry on or the Brexit debate to carry on? Um, and actually, they're in, I think, much more of a difficult territory when it's, do you like this specific deal? And we're going to talk about the contents of it and put it through a lot of scrutiny. So uh, it's not just from a, it's not just that the deal is vulnerable to a, this isn't true Brexit argument, but I'm sure it would also be vulnerable to being scrutinised from the other direction of uh, its other flaws. And it does lots of things that when people look at it, they decide that they wouldn't like. Mm. Um, so it's sort of more widely, does does the content of the deal get put up to, for debate? Um, I'll add a, a brief one, a, a different question. Um, and that is really how far... Um, the Labour side, uh, Labour MPs are prepared to rally behind Corbyn. Um, we uh, talked a bit before about the idea that Corbyn is going to be probably more scrutinised by the media as a potential prime minister than he was last time. I think in the last election, Labour MPs were able to uh, put themselves forward sort of being a bit ambivalent uh, or ambiguous about uh, their position on Corbyn. Uh, I think that might be more difficult for them this time. And I think it will be interesting to see um, how far they're prepared to shore up Corbyn and how far the Labour campaign uh, and Labour MPs individually feel unable to say that they want Corbyn to be prime minister. Yeah, that's going to be something that's always been an issue. And uh, yeah, this is very much um, Corbyn's last stand one way or another, isn't it? He either gets into office now or he goes. I think I'm, I'm going to be bold enough to say that. I think if he loses this election, he's done, um, unless it's lost in a way that's there's another election imminently after. But that's all. let's uh, leave it there for today. That's all we've got time for for this episode of the Polling Matters podcast. Uh, for those that wonder where we've been and where we will be, we are planning on doing more regular podcasts during this election. Um, whether they form a specific day each, each uh, week is a bit less clear. Uh, but do keep subscribed and do uh, share the podcast on social media and elsewhere uh, to help let people know that we're back more than anything. Um, and do send in your questions if there's anything you want us to to cover on the show or guests you think that might be useful do make suggestions uh, it would all be uh, very helpful for us um, but for now thanks as ever for listening and let's keep an eye on the polls in the coming weeks